0: south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 111, covering the week of March 5th through March 9th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. I'm glad to be here. Before we get started, you should go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org, at the top of the page, you'll find all of our social media buttons. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube page with those buttons. You can also click the Amazon smile button. And while you're shopping at Amazon.com, you can give a few pennies to the Abbeville, Abbeville Institute as your charity of choice. Also, while you're there at the Abbeville Institute.org, you can give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook, book Kirkpatrick Sales, Emancipation Hell, and you'll get on our email list where you will get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and also our week in review email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. Also remember that we exist on your generous contributions alone, so while you're at Abbeville Institute, just go to abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Support. Click on that. You'll find Memberships for Individuals, and you can donate as little as $3 a month if you're a student or $5 a month if you're not a student or $25 annually or $50 annually. We have higher options as well, but that's the minimum you can give. And, of course, you can help keep this podcast going, the website going, all of our conferences going. So do that. Your contributions are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Also, while you're there, you can click on that button as well. You'll see a button that says Shop, and you can buy your Abbeville Institute apparel. You can buy shirts and hats and golf towels. So click on that. It's all embroidered, nice stuff. Uh, It's not screen printed. So go on out there and get you an Abbeville Institute shirt. And also, you can go to your uh, web store of choice, your app store of choice, whether it's uh, for a web-based, Windows-based device or an Apple device, and you can get the Abbeville Institute app. You can download that for free. So get your Abbeville Institute app where you can listen to all of our lectures, over 200 of those. Of course, this podcast as well. It can also uh, have the website on the go. So you don't even have to go to the website anymore. You can just go to our app. So just look for Abbeville Institute in your favorite app store and get the Abbeville Institute app. All right. All of that said, it's time to talk about the week in review or the week that was at the Abbeville Institute. Had a lot of good stuff this week. I think some very interesting articles. And uh, one that I found uh, to be you know, a little bit uh, a change of pace in terms of the history you often talk about. And I think it it shows, uh, it gives a nice example, I should say, of uh, a an episode in Southern history that that relates to a current debate. So we'll talk about that. But first and foremost, I ran an article on Monday entitled The Confederate History of the Maryland Flag by Tony Del Pupo. And um, in my own personal history, I had the honor of uh, attending a university as an undergraduate that had a dedicated historian, dedicated Southern historian who told this history uh, in his classes. And, of course, I went to school in Maryland as an undergraduate, so uh, I already was aware of this. But a lot of people don't really think of Maryland as a southern state. But in 1860 and 61, it certainly was. And I think you can make the case that Maryland was a southern state all the way up into the middle of the 20th century. Um, Because of the influence of the general government, it would be harder to make a case for that today, Um, just like Virginia is uh you know the the northern part of virginia is so saturated with people from all over the country particularly from the northeast and the far west uh california meaning it's it's hard to say that northern virginia has re- has retained its southern character and that's unfortunate because northern virginia had a lot of good southern history but uh certainly you can make a case that uh you know maryland was was well, just as southern as virginia and when I was writing my dissertation on James Byard of Delaware, he, he actually said that. He said, Look, uh, Delaware had to go with Maryland, and Virginia. And he said, Virginia, there's no doubt, and Maryland is going to be the key. And he firmly believed, he was having discussions with uh, high ranking uh, members of the Maryland government, that Maryland was going to secede. Uh, and he thought that uh, Delaware should go with Maryland, and Virginia. He thought Delaware should secede. So there was a general opinion in 1861 that Maryland probably would go, and if it wasn't for the actions of Governor Hicks of Maryland, and of course Lincoln's desire to keep Maryland in the Union, and arresting all the pro-secession members of the Maryland legislature, Maryland probably would have called a convention and perhaps would have seceded from the Union. Of course, a very famous Confederate general, Bradley T. Johnson, was from Maryland. So there's a lot of Confederate history in Maryland, and if you look at the Maryland state flag, it's also uh, influenced by the Confederacy. And this, uh, this particular piece does a nice job in pointing out the parts of the Maryland flag. It's the, it's the, it's the red and white part of the flag uh, that is uh, the Confederate portion of the Maryland flag. So uh, that is uh, called the Crossland Banner or the Crossland Flag, which Confederate soldiers proudly carried into battle. In fact, the headquarters flag of Bradley T. Johnson was that Crossland Banner. And uh, Maryland has also carried into into battle the state seal of Maryland, which is often called the Bucktail Flag. And so he concludes, he says, um, quote, it's manifestly clear that Maryland's flag is inseparable from the history of the Confederacy. That is not to presume this tradition prevails in exclusion to all others concerning the flag, for nothing could be further from the truth. Throughout nearly every decade in Maryland's storied past, whether on the Great Seal or seemingly countless numbers of flags, the quartered Calvert and Crossland coat of arms have borne witness to innumerable, innumerable events, both noble and tragic. Nonetheless, for those natives of Maryland who seek the wisdom of the past, knowing the heroism and sense of duty under which Maryland's Confederates fought and died, the Maryland flag should forever evoke a sense of pride. So... Uh, Certainly, you have the Calvert Arms as part of that, and then you also have the Crossland Flag, Um, and the 5th Regiment. uh, He talks about the 5th Regiment history, even after the war, and how important that was for for Maryland military history in general, and how proud these people were of their Confederate past. Uh, That played a role in all kinds of events after the war, and so... um, it's it's important to understand that Confederate part of this Maryland flag, and and uh, if we forget that, you know, and he he mentions that the uh, Secretary of State of the state of Maryland uh, talks about the Confederate history of of the Maryland flag, and of course this has led to backlash. People want to take that part of it out. They want to uh, you know maybe change the flag to get rid of that quote unquote Confederate part of the flag, and so that's uh, problematic. Of course, the Maryland state song is always under attack. Maryland, my Maryland. Which is funny because for decades, no one thought that fla- that song was offensive. In fact, if you go back and you listen to the jazz musicians of the turn of the 20th century, 19-teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, when they were playing Dixieland jazz, what's often called hot jazz, they played Maryland, my Maryland, it's a version of it all the time. Black jazz musicians, just like they played Dixie. I mean, this was commonplace, so... Uh, to say that uh, these things were offensive to people over generations it offends modern historians who uh and modern snowflakes who <laughs> who get offended about everything uh that's that's the problem you know people in the historical profession who just find fault with anything uh because they've reverted back to this uh radical republican view of american history and so you know, Maryland was certainly a southern state. In fact, the best book ever written on that topic was written by Bart Talbert, and it's entitled Maryland, the South's First Casualty. And you can get it. It's, it's expensive, but you can still find that book uh, used. Uh, but it is a wonderful uh, discussion of Maryland, history of Maryland, and uh, Maryland's uh, pro-Confederate sympathies. Um, fantastic read. Not, not a long book. But one that uh, is is uh, well researched, well documented, and well written as well. So uh, it's an easy read. So I would highly recommend going out and reading this little piece by Del Pupo. Uh, it's it's a nice discussion of Maryland's Confederate history, uh, and also Maryland's Confederate flag. Uh, now, let me let me fast forward to Thursday on that particular idea because the piece we ran on Thursday entitled "The Barbarians at the Gate." Uh, at the gates is by uh, Gene Kaiser, and it talks about this historical profession and how how it's the, the the academy has become so saturated with the people that hate the South, and really not just the South. It's traditional American history that they don't like. Uh, it's traditional American heroes they don't like. And, of course, Robert E. Lee, after the war, for many Americans, particularly into the 20th century, became a traditional American hero, uh, he was American, not just Southern. Same thing with Stonewall Jackson. And all of these Confederate monuments that were erected in the period after the war, particularly uh, in the early 20th century, they were being built all over the United States, not just in the South. And you find that these sculptors who were involved in these monuments were some of the best-known sculptors in the world, North and South. They were, they were uh, designing monuments in honor of Northern heroes. They were designing on- monuments in honor of Southern heroes, and so this was part of a public beautification process. But, of course, um, you look at the way these things are portrayed now, it's simply a sign or a signal of white supremacy. Now, that would have to be the case in the North as well because these monuments are being built in the North. And, in fact, the monument that we use, the image of the monument we use, which is um, the Georgia uh, Confederate monument at Chickamauga, um, the, there's an image, a picture of it out there, uh when it was being built with a one-legged black man building the monument on top of the monument he's it's 86 feet in the air he's up there he's helping construct this thing he's one-legged and he's he's a black man i'm sure that he thought that this thing was you know a symbol of his oppression here he is helping build this thing uh and it's just it's amazing uh but of course uh, gene kaiser talks about the overall destruction of the war how tragic this event was And uh, the reason that we use that Chickamauga uh, monument is because he he cites uh, Confederate Colonel Georgie Purvis's summation of the American or uh, Southern valor valor at the the Battle of Chickamauga. And uh, how awful this was and how heroic these men were in the last paragraph. Um, says as quote, this, they looked down again on the slope, slippery with blood and strewn thick as leaves with all the horrible wreck of battle over which, and in spite of repeated failure, these assaulting Confederate columns still formed and reformed, charging again and again with undaunted and undying courage. And so this is what these monuments were about. This is it. And so when you talk about destroying these monuments, when you talk about tearing down the common soldiers' monuments, which is what most of these monuments were dedicated to, you're tearing down that. You're tearing down valor and heroism. And as Basil Gildersleeve noted, it's heroism that uh, was in the same vein as the Spartan defense of Thermopylae. We don't tear that down. The Spartans we w- we would not want to live in spartan society today they were a slaveholding people the spartan spartan uh, culture was harsh and yet we can still recognize we can still pay tribute in western civilization to the spartans defending thermopylae from the persian army it's western individualism fighting back against oriental despotism that's what that's what thermopylae represented and that's what for generations, the Confederacy represented the heroism and valor of standing up for Western civilization. That's what these things were about. And so, of course, he brings up that today in this day and age, um, the he calls it the killing of history. And, of course, he he cites a book by Keith Winshuttle uh, by uh, that title. Um, they, that history departments have become politicized. and That's essentially what you have. And he brings that up. You know, how much money these wealthiest colleges gave to the uh, Clinton campaign compared to Donald Trump. How much of the money uh, that uh, journalists gave to Clinton compared to Donald Trump. Um and he, he cites Windshuttle saying that most young people today are, were taught to scorn the traditional values of Western culture. Equality, freedom, democracy, human rights as hollow rhetoric used to mask the self-interest of the wealthy and powerful. Now, I think that they're getting the idea of equality, but it's what type of equality that they're getting. It's this quality with a capital E that Mel Bradford often talks about. This equality of condition rather than equality under the law, which is what the founding generation meant by equality. And so this is a skewed, it's a distorted vision of our past. Um, and Winshuttle says this, One of the reasons the humanities and social sciences have been taken over so quickly by the sophistry described in this book is because too few of those who might have been expected to resist the putsch understood what its investigators were saying. The unin, uh, uninitiated reader who opens a typical book on postmodernism, poststructuralism, must think he or she has stumbled onto a new foreign language. So obscure and dense is the prose. Now, this happens to be a very effective ta- tactic to adopt its, in academic circles where there is always an expectation that things are never simple, that anyone who writes clearly is thereby being shallow. Obscurity is assumed to equal profundity, a quality that signals a superiority over the thinking of the uneducated herd. Now, this is important. I'll never forget I was in a graduate seminar, and the chairman of the department at the time was running the seminar, and he he talked about this. He said, yeah, history books, you know, there's a place to have these things, to have books that are easy to read, but you have to have books that you have to chew, that are difficult to get through, that shows how, how intelligent and bright we are. Essentially, that was his point. And I write popular histories. And people have questioned, why do you write it to where it's, and and I actually had somebody critique something I wrote one time, saying, oh, that just shows how stupid this guy is because he writes so simply. The point of a book is that people can read it. Why have a book that nobody wants to read? Why have a book that uh, is written so densely that the average American can't get through it? Now, this is not to say you don't want to have it be sound, in fact, and and have uh, hard-hitting prose. But the fact is, you want your histories to be read. This is what Shelby Foote often implored, to start to learn how to write. Learn how to write. And so you have these academic books, and nobody reads them. You might get five—academic presses are in trouble because they're actually losing money like crazy because only maybe libraries buy these things, and a few people will get it. Most people that do get the book are getting it for free for a review copy. Uh, it's, It's pathetic because nobody wants to read these things. No American goes out and seeks out an academic history to read. They want to go read the popular stuff. They go to the Barnes & Noble or the bookstore, and they pick up the popular material because it's easy to read. So historians historians need to learn that lesson, but they don't. In the academy, they don't get it. They just want to write for the journals. They want to write these academic books thinking that they're superior to everyone else. And this is the problem, and they're really not that superior. Most of them aren't even that bright, but yet they want to feel and think like they are. It's an insecurity. It's an inferiority complex that often uh, causes problems for academic history. And they're th- so thin-skinned that if you attack them, it's you know, it just gets them all riled up. And so you know, Kaiser implores us to have the same courage that these men at Chickamauga had in defending our monuments and our patrimony from the barbarians at the gates and this is important. Um, we have to go out and make make a stand. I mean, somewhere. This is why we had our wonderful conference on uh, Confederate monuments this uh, couple of weeks ago in Charleston, and it's why we do what we do. Now, uh, that said, uh, getting into some other material for the week, uh, the piece on Tuesday was a book review. It's an older book review, but it was uh, on Mel Bradford's original intentions. Which you haven't if you haven't read this book. I was actually going back to undergraduate. I was assigned this as an undergraduate when we did uh, when I took a, a U.S. history course, an upper division you know, U.S. history course, um, and it's it's a wonderful book. It's it's not Bradford um, has uh, at times fairly dense prose, but um, this book is a wonderful discussion of original intent. And Kirkwood wrote this review uh, back in uh, 1994. Um, and the book is, essentially, you can get it used for uh, a few bucks. Uh, it's not in print anymore, so you have to get a used copy. Uh, but he talks about how Bradford's position on things like the Federalist Essays, which really weren't that important, on Madison not being the father of the Constitution, how that's over overstated. He talks about how the ratification debates were just as important as the Federalist Essays, and how this original intent can be found. Now, uh, because you have the state ratification processes now. He Bradford does say that each state interpreted the Constitution differently. That is true to an extent, and I w- I would disagree that that it's entirely impossible. You know, you, you look at these things and look at it differently. They all were saying a similar thing, though, and that similar thing was that the powers of the general government were few and defined as. Uh, James Wilson of Pennsylvania pointed out in his State House Yard speech, and that the powers of the states were limitless except as uh, expressly denied in Article One, Section Ten. That is the key to understanding originalism. And of course, Bradford uh, often took a lot of heat for his positions, particularly on his opposition to Abraham Lincoln. It's why he was never uh, appointed to a a, a federal position. Um, That Ronald Reagan was going to appoint him to, and there was a lot of neoconservative backlash to that. But regardless, um, uh, Bradford pointed out that uh, this particular understanding of the Constitution, reading these ratification debates, is more important than anything else. And he also points out that Calhoun's positions on the Constitution are as important as reading the Federalist Essay's. So you have to you have to read not just the Federalists, which you can go get in any store, but you have to read these ratification debates. Or uh, this is why I wrote My Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. I took those ratification debates. I took what people said at the Philadelphia Convention. I took the Federalist essays and other public documents, which were just as important, and I went through the Constitution clause by clause and explained what the people at the time were saying it meant. Through, across the board, through these ratifications, those that oppose the document, the opponents of the Constitution, and those who were for it, the proponents of the Constitution. That's how you have to understand the Constitution. So original intent can be found, and you have to read more than just the Federalists. You have to read more uh, than just a few ruminations from famous people. I mean, you know, Madison Hamilton, Madison Hamilton and John Jay, who later was a Supreme Court justice, are very famous. That's why people read the Federalist essays, but they had very little impact, even in New York. You might want to read John Dickinson's ruminations on the Constitution, or Roger Sherman's. Or you read the New York Ratifying Convention, or you read the Virginia Ratifying Convention, or even the... New York ratifying convention and what uh, Hamilton said there, but what the opponents of the document said there, people like John Lansing, because they're as important as anything else. So that's how you find original intent. Of course, John Rutledge, read what John Rutledge said about the document. John Rutledge of South South Carolina, which is the picture at the top of this piece, because he was an important, quote unquote, founding father. Now, speaking of the Founding Fathers, the last piece on Friday is entitled, This is Why the Founding Generation Crafted the Second Amendment. It's a little-known episode in Tennessee history in the 20th century. It's called the Battle of Athens, which happened in 1946. You had a corrupt government, which was trying to maintain its own power by stealing an election. And these World War II vets, which had just come home, <laughs> essentially overthrew the government They, uh, by force, by, with firearms— uh, surrounded and laid siege to the jail where they were trying to manipulate the election, uh, exchanged some gunfire, and then dynamited the jail uh, to get the government, the corrupt government, to surrender. And then they counted the ballots legally, and those people were thrown out of office. This is why the founding generation wanted the Second Amendment, to make sure that government stayed true to itself, that these people stayed in line. Uh, the people of uh, McMinn County, Tennessee, which is where this Battle of Athens took place, understood why you had the Second Amendment because you had to you had to get the rascals out. Uh, and and uh, Lewis uh, Liverman, who does a nice job, little graphics, he did a nice little graphic on this. And nobody was killed, but it was an, an effort where these good citizens of Tennessee said enough of the, uh, is enough with the corruption. They wanted it out. And that's why we have the Second Amendment. So uh, when, the, when we talk about these debates and say, well, the founding generation, uh, you know, they, they never saw that. It's not, it's just so you can go hunt. You had the Second Amendment. It, it, it is, hunting is, uh, is the key to understanding it. Well, no, they thought that was natural. natural Self defense and hunting, that was just something you did. But you had the Second Amendment for a citizen militia to oppose corruption to ensure that the central authority never became too powerful, that they had a standing army that would be too powerful. There was a supreme fear of a standing army in the founding generation because a standing army would have always been used throughout history to coerce the general public. So we had a, a, a militia to ensure the government stayed in line. That was why, and this is a very short piece, but that is why we had the Second Amendment. And finally, the piece on Wednesday. It's a, going back to a piece we ran last week um, on who's going to fill their shoes. And this is a little piece by Paul Yarbrough. He wrote it years ago, but it's entitled Little, pa- little Town with a Big Heart or a Little Town with a Big Heart. And it talks about a little town in uh, Mississippi. Uh, it's Hickory, Hickory, Mississippi. And uh, he says it's... Uh, it's a it's a town. the 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 motto was a little town with a big heart, but you have to get off the interstate to find it. And he says it's a it's is Newton County, uh, an area rich in Southern history. And it involves the war, uh, the Battle of Newton Station, and how much that war factored into these people in Hickory, Mississippi loving their ancestors, their patrimony. Uh, and he talks about how just wonderful this little town was and the people there and the characters of Mississippi and how these people would come back. They would come back to this little town. And this is this, is this localism that we often talk about on the Abbeville Institute. That's important community. Small is beautiful. And now you have to get off the interstate to go find this thing. But that's okay. Uh, and as Yarborough points out, he says, one has to only read Southern literature to understand the provincial milieu of the South and the agrarian roots that have fed it. He talks about Joe Chandler Harris and William Faulkner and Eudora Welty and John Grisham even. It's a story of place, of people, of, of, of a time and, of course, how that's being done away with because of interstates and other things. But still, still, uh, you, can, you can find home in the South in these local areas. And he actually points out a story by, James, uh, by Jim Kibler, his novel Walking Toward Home. And this is what Kibler writes, quote, guess the best thing dirt roads do is they slow people down. The world's too much in a hurry, and usually with no place to go, everything flies by in a blur. And people get to where they don't belong anywhere, and ain't from no place at all. And he concludes, he says, maybe downtown is where it truly belongs. The sign. And it's home, because it is local. Because the south is local love that line. And I think that when it gets down to it, when we start talking about all these political ideas and original intent and the states and all these things, it can't exist without a culture, without a people and a culture and a local culture. Uh, It can't exist without that. And so if you can get anything out of what we do at the Institute, hopefully it would be an understanding of this local nature of the South, of this localism that's so important, of common culture and community among people in the South, and the music and the literature and the food. And of course a common history, a heroism, a patriotism that Southerners had, a pride in those things. These, these monuments were local. They were built in every little town square because every little town square had an uncle or a brother or a father or a grandfather, whoever, whoever it was who fought in that war, and it was honoring that local. It wasn't about the overarching confederacy. It was about the men in the local community, the common soldier who had gone off, left his family at home, and served for however many years he made it, whether he was killed or wounded or sick, or maybe he came home to nothing and was impoverished. That's what that's about. That local. It's about Hickory, Mississippi. Not about the Confederacy. But about Hickory, Mississippi. It's about the people in Hickory. By tearing down these monuments. By disparaging their heroism. and Patriotism. Because that's what it was. Their real Americanism. You're tearing down America. And that's the... That's the intent, as Gene Kaiser points out. Tearing down America. Because nothing in American history, traditional American history, is worth preserving to these people. Original intent is meaningless unless you have the local. Until next time, good day.